Well, good morning everybody. Can I add my welcome to the welcome already given? It's lovely to see you. Uh, One or two visitors who aren't ordinarily with us and it's especially great to have you with us as well. Thank you, Conwell, for that very dramatic and uh, faithful reading of a most interesting passage. Uh, And we certainly need the Holy Spirit to help us understand it. So won't you bow with me as we ask for God's help. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege of opening your word and holding it in our hands. And we pray now that you would open our lives and hold them in your hands so that as we read about you in the pages of scripture, our hearts may be warmed with a renewed awareness of your love. Our minds might be filled with your truth and our lives may be equipped to serve and glorify your name. And we ask it for Christ's sake. Amen. Well, do as always, please have the white bulletin open in front of you with the outline of where we're going in the next few moments, and of course, your Bibles open at Judges 3. So, there you are, you're setting off on a journey Uh, What do you need? Of course, I suppose it depends, doesn't it, where you're going. Uh, If it's a short journey, you probably only need your wallet, uh, your car keys and your cell phone. But uh, if it's a more serious expedition, that won't be enough. And uh, you're going to need to think rather carefully about all the other things to take with you if you're going to reach your destination safely. Now, the Christian life is a journey. The uh, first generation of Christians knew that perfectly well. Uh, The book of Acts tells us that in the first century, Christianity was described as the way. So, if you were a Christian in the first century, you were known as a follower of the way. And that, of course, is because the Lord Jesus said to his disciples, I am the way. What Jesus meant was that to be a Christian is to embark on a lifelong journey following him. Now, some of you may say, well, that's perfectly obvious. I knew that, Simon. But I think it's important to say it because it's not how many people and many Christians think today. Many people think that being a Christian is a matter of reading the Bible Uh, knowing uh, certain things about Jesus and going to church, full stop. I have to tell you, that is not quite right. Knowing these things, of course, is essential. Reading the Bible is essential. Going to church is essential. But being a Christian is more than that. Being a Christian means following Jesus moment by moment, day by day, in all the ups and downs of everyday life. One of the most imaginative and helpful books about this is Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan. Uh, If you've never read it, can I urge you to buy a copy and read it? There are some very good modern English translations. Uh, It's a parable of the Christian life, and uh, it tells the story of a young man called Christian, 
travelling from the city of destruction to the celestial city. I don't know whether you knew this, but after the Bible, it's the most popular book that's ever been written. And it's been translated into more than 200 languages. And the reason it's so popular is because it shows us what we mean when we say the Christian life is a journey. So, if you're a Christian here this morning, then you're travelling towards your heavenly destination, and one day you will stand before the Lord Jesus Christ face to face. Now, if that is the case, what are some of the things you need to take with you to ensure that you reach your destination safely? That's what we're going to be thinking about this morning. And I suppose there may be lots of things that you would want to take with you on your pilgrimage. But this morning, we're going to look at just two things in particular. And we'll find both of them in the passage that Conwell read for us a moment ago. I suppose in many ways, it's a rather strange passage. It has some rather unsavoury details in it. And you might be wondering whether an Old Testament story like this can possibly have anything relevant to say to us living in Cape Town in 2018. But I suppose just as a plate of spinach and broccoli may not look particularly appetising, nevertheless we know it's full of vitamins. And in just the same way, there's much in Judges 3 to strengthen you and I for our Christian journey. And of course, because the story is full of so much dramatic action, we're unlikely to forget it quickly. So we're going to look at two main questions this morning. The first is, who does the Lord save? And the second, how does the Lord save? So firstly then, who does the Lord save in verses 7 to 11? Now these verses uh, tell us about a man called Othniel, who is the first of the judges or the leaders of Israel in this book. Now two weeks ago we said, didn't we, that there are a lot of um, people in judges with strange names. And so here we find Othniel engaged in battle with a man called Cushan Rishathaim. But can I say we mustn't allow their strange names to take our eyes off the ball. Uh, In the last few weeks some of us have been enjoying watching the Soccer World Cup on television. And uh, as far as I could see, a great many of the players had completely unpronounceable names. But you see, their names didn't actually prevent us from enjoying the match or enjoying them scoring goals. Now, that's what we need to do here. We're going to forget the names for a moment and instead we're just going to look at what actually happens in verses 7 to 11. So come with me to verse 7, where the first thing that happens is that Israel did evil in the eyes of the Lord and they forgot the Lord their God. The second thing that happens is about the Lord because in verse 8 we're told 
that the anger of the Lord burned against Israel. And the expression of his anger was that he sold them. Then the third thing that happens in verse 9 is that Israel cried out to the Lord. And the fourth thing also in verse 9 is that the Lord raised up this deliverer for Israel called Othniel and he saved them. And then lastly in verse 11, the land enjoyed peace for 40 years. Now, if you were with us last week, you'll remember that that was the cycle or the pattern that was introduced to us in chapter 2. And it's a cycle that's repeated a number of times in the book. But, of course, the question is, what does it actually mean? What's the message? Why is this story even in the Bible? Well, to answer that question, I want us to focus on what Israel did in this episode. You see, at the beginning, uh, we're told that Israel did evil. And that is defined for us, isn't it, in the second half of verse 8, as forgetting the Lord. I was reading very recently about a couple returning from holiday in Europe with their 12-year-old son. Uh, They stopped at a petrol station just outside Basel in Switzerland and they got out to refuel, stretch their legs and walk around. Uh, After they'd done all that, they continued their journey and 20 minutes later one of them turned around talking to to their son on the back seat only to discover he wasn't there. Obviously they returned to Basel as quickly as possible. It wasn't easy. They got lost several times before they found the police station And eventually, several hours later, they were reunited with their son. Uh, Interestingly, throughout the ordeal, the son had been completely calm. And uh, when he was interviewed by the newspapers, he said this, My parents are often forgetful, but I knew they'd come back eventually. We wouldn't forget the Lord, would we? Or would we? Actually, you see, when the text says that Israel forgot the Lord, can I tell you, that does not mean that they had terrible memories. That's not what it means. It means that what they knew about the Lord was no longer influencing their thinking and their behaviour. The things that had once gripped their hearts and their imaginations about the Lord had now become stale. They weren't real to them anymore. Other things in the surrounding culture had suddenly become a great deal more interesting. So think about this with me. We don't know what distracted those parents I spoke about when they got back into the car to continue their journey. But you see, if you had asked them beforehand, would you ever forget your son? They would have said, don't be silly, of course not. And yet, of course, they did. And even if you and I don't intend to, can I say, we also forget the Lord. It's very easy, isn't it, for us to get distracted. We're all so frightfully busy. We have so many priorities and deadlines at work, at college, and in our families. And there are times 
when we forget the Lord. Because what we know about him is no longer actually controlling our thoughts and our behaviour. And before we realise it, there's a growing distance between us and him. And you see, the Lord cares far too much about our relationship with him to allow that situation to continue indefinitely. You see, if we forget the Lord and we're no longer serving him, by definition, we're serving something else. could be anything. It could be money. It could be career. Uh, It could be a relationship. Whatever it is, if it's not the Lord, we're in serious trouble. Because whatever we're serving in the first place will, in the end, make us miserable. It won't deliver what we want. But worse than that, it stands between us and God. And we all know where that leads. And so you see, God in his love and mercy intervenes in order to bring us to our senses. Well, here, Israel forgot the Lord and the Lord sold them into the hands of Cushan Rishathain, the king of Mesopotamia, for eight years. Now, we're not going to say more about him this morning because I want us to focus on what Israel did in verse 9. Because, you see, when they were in deep trouble, what did they do? They cried out to the Lord. Now, there are people, aren't there, who say that asking for help is a sign of weakness. But can I say that sometimes it's essential? It's more than a century now since the Titanic sank after hitting an iceberg in the North Atlantic. Uh, The incident actually has become a classic illustration of what happens when men forget God. Because, you see, the shipbuilders claimed that the Titanic was unsinkable. Indeed, on the day that the ship was launched, somebody put up a sign by the docks that said, I defy God to sink this ship. But uh, on the maiden voyage, the route that they chose was way too far north for that time of year, and the captain was urged to make speed, rather than safety, his top priority. According to the film, they'd even left behind the ship's binoculars, so the man on the watch couldn't actually see the iceberg until it was already way too late. And so, of course, when the collision came, they were suddenly in desperate need, and they cried out for help. Only one ship responded, but it was too far away to get there in time before the Titanic went down. And the point is that when the people boarded Titanic for that trip, none of them ever imagined in their wildest dreams that they were going to need help. But they did, and they cried out. And unfortunately, help was too far away to get there in time. But you see, I say this because the Lord is never too far away. He'll never be too far away in your life or in mine. 
And we are never to be too proud to cry out for help. That actually is one of the great lessons in the book of Judges. I recently came across a rather lovely postscript to the Titanic tragedy about a man called John Harper. He was born in Belfast in 1872 and he was on the Titanic on that trip. He wasn't a Christian and he ended up in the cold water clinging on for dear life to a piece of wreckage. And then suddenly out of the darkness a voice called out to him Is your soul saved? And John Harper replied, no it isn't. And the voice said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And later he heard that voice calling out the same message to other people as they sank beneath the waters to eternity. And uh, John Harper says, there and then, with two miles of water beneath me, in my desperation, I cried out to Christ to save me. I believed on the Lord Jesus and I was saved. Now friends, there will be many, many times on your Christian journey when you'll be facing all kinds of struggles and difficulties. And there will be times when you will forget the Lord. You might be in one of those times right now. Won't you remember what Israel did here? They were plunged into these terrible difficulties entirely of their own making. But they cried out to the Lord and the Lord heard them. That is one of the greatest lessons that we need to keep relearning in the Christian life. It is so very easy for us Christians to be proud. And we say, do you know what, I don't actually really need to cry out. I can navigate my own way through this problem entirely on my own. And when we do that, our hearts become hard. But can I say, we need to be those who will continually cry out to the Lord. That actually is the great invitation of the Gospel, isn't it? And it's one of the reasons why one of our favourite verses should be Hebrews chapter 4 verse 16, which says, Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we might receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. So that is the great lesson of verses 7 to 11. Just think about it. What we have here is a spirit-anointed saviour from the tribe of Judah rescuing the people of God and giving them peace. And who does he save? Those who cry out to the Lord. And friends, you and I also have a spirit-anointed saviour. He too is from the tribe of Judah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And his speciality is rescuing all those who call out to him. 
And it may be that there's someone here this morning and you've never done that before in your life. Maybe you thought you didn't need to. Maybe you thought you were absolutely fine and you didn't need to be saved. Can I say, if you have forgotten the Lord, you most definitely do need to be saved. It means you've drifted away and you're serving something else. You do need to be saved. And this will be the perfect opportunity for you to do what John Harper did and to cry out to the Lord this morning. And in his great mercy, he will surely answer. So that's the first thing we learn from our passage this morning, and it's the first thing we need to take with us on our pilgrimage. The Lord saves those who cry out to him. But secondly, we need to ask, well, how does the Lord save? And here we're looking at verse 12 and following. And we come to the story of this man, Ehud, And uh, the story, you see, has the the same basic shape as the previous one. So once again, in verse 12, Israel did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And the Lord responded by giving Eglon, king of Moab, power over them. Uh, Eglon, of course, was a most repulsive individual. Uh, In verse 17, we're told that he was a very fat man. And uh, he and his men oppressed Israel for not eight years, but 18 years. It was a harsh regime in which uh, Eglon demanded much of the produce of the land for himself and his men. Presumably that's why he was so very fat. Uh, For Israel, of course, this was just like being back in the land of Egypt, wasn't it? And for 18 long years, they were completely powerless to do anything about it. They couldn't set themselves free. And the sheer physical bulk of Eglon was a symbol. Uh, It was a picture of the oppression that Israel was suffering. They were quite literally being squashed by this fat, overweight, gross tyrant. And so once again Israel cried out to the Lord in verse 15, And once again, the Lord gave them a deliverer, Ehud, a left-handed man from the tribe of Benjamin. And at the end of the passage, once again, the land had peace, uh, this time not for 40 years, but for 80 years. So it's the same basic pattern as the story of Othniel. But this time, did you notice the drama is described in a great deal more detail? Indeed, the whole uh, section from verse 16 gives us uh, tremendous information about what actually happened. With Othniel, it was five verses. With Ehud, it's 18 verses. It's a far more comprehensive report. And so we need to ask, you know, why all the extra information? Well, friends, it's to show Israel and to show you and me how the Lord saves. So let's look at the message of this whole section. What are you and I meant to take away from this today? What are we meant to learn that's going to strengthen us in our Christian pilgrimage?
pilgrimage. And there are two things to notice. The first is the fact that Ehud is a left-handed man. We're told that twice, once in verse 15 and then again in verse 21. Now that actually is critical for the story. But can I say it may be that you and I misunderstand it. Uh, Today, in many spheres of life, uh, being a left-hander is apparently an advantage. Uh, A recent study in the United States showed that college-educated left-handers go on to earn between 10 and 15% more than right-handers. Isn't that interesting? Of the last seven presidents of the United States, five of them have been left-handed. And if Rafael Nadal were with us this morning, he might very well say, mightn't he, that one of the reasons his opponents find him such a difficult cookie to deal with on the tennis court is because he's a lefty. Yes, in tennis, being left-handed can be a real advantage. But that is not the situation here. Uh, You might like to take out your green sheet and turn to the back page where I've given you a quotation on this by one of the commentators, a man called Michael Wilcock from the Bible Speaks Today series. Listen to his comment about this. Quote, God's chosen deliverer, when he comes, turns out to be a man who cannot use his right hand because that is what the Hebrew phrase means. It was not making the positive statement that Ehud naturally uses his left hand, but the negative one, that he is bound or restricted in the use of his right. Perhaps it is deformed or paralysed in some way. And as an added irony, he belongs to the tribe of Benjamin, whose name means son of the right hand. We miss the point of the story if knowing the outcome in advance we have our eyes fixed from the start on that able left hand with which Ehud is going to kill his enemy. Except for Ehud himself, all the people in this story focus on the other one, the withered right hand. Now, friends, this is absolutely crucial to a right understanding of this remarkable story. Because when Ehud arrives at King Eglon's court and his enemies see his withered right hand, he looks weak. He's no threat at all. That's why, of course, Eglon was perfectly happy to get rid of his highly paid bodyguards and be left alone with Ehud. With his withered right arm, he looked to be completely harmless. He couldn't possibly do any damage. He's weak. He's unimpressive. So that's one of the key things we need to hold in our minds in this story. The other thing we need to notice uh, about Ehud is that he brings a secret word. And again, you'll notice that's repeated twice. He says in verse 19, I have a secret message, or a secret word, for you, O king. 
And then again in verse 20, when Ehud is alone with the king, Ehud says, I have a message from God for you. Now, of course, we know that this secret message from the Lord is in fact a two-edged sword that he's already got strapped to his right thigh. I wonder if you can see the picture. The people of God here are oppressed by a powerful enemy. God raises up a weak-looking saviour who brings a message from God in the form of a two-edged sword. And the message is delivered and the result is that the enemy of God's people is destroyed. Now, there are people who have um, some difficulties with this story and they find some of the gory details really rather repulsive. For example, the uh, description in verse 22 of the handle of the sword sinking into the king's belly and his fat closing over it. It's rather gross, isn't it? I mean, do we really need to know that? And there are a few other details in the passage that sound a trifle indelicate on Sunday morning. But can I say to you that this is Hebrew humour. This is actually meant to be funny. Because the point is, you see, that Israel had been oppressed by this man for 18 years. That's a long time, isn't it? They couldn't see any end in sight. And Eglon thought he was invincible. And the Bible says that when godless people think like that, God laughs. And God's people laugh with him. Because the thinking of these godless people is so far removed from the reality. They think they're in charge, but they're not. Now, there's lots more we could say about that, but we're not going to do that this morning. Because this morning, I want you to fix your minds on the two key elements in this story. There's Ehud's apparent weakness, and there is his secret word, which is actually a two-edged sword. So let's try and pull the threads together and think about what God is saying to us. Ehud appears weak. He stands alone against this oppressive tyrant, but he delivers the message from God and the result is victory and salvation. And this is how the Lord saves. And of course it takes us right to the very heart of the gospel, doesn't it? So a little bit later in the Old Testament, Isaiah talks about God's suffering servant. He tells us that he was despised. God's suffering servant looks weak and unimpressive. No threat to anybody. And uh, in Isaiah 49, The servant speaks, if you're taking notes, this is Isaiah 49 verse 2, you can look it up later. And the servant says this, 
He made my mouth like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of his hand he hid me. He made me a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver. The suffering servant who is weak and despised and alone is the one who will deliver the word of God with power like a two-edged sword and he will defeat the enemy of God's people. And then we get to the New Testament and we see the Lord Jesus hanging up there on the cross and he has all the appearance of weakness. I mean, nailed to the cross, he looks totally powerless, doesn't he? And his enemies gather around him and they mock him. But his final words, it is finished, are actually a two-edged sword because they pierce sin and death and the devil. And uh, through those words, that strange message from God, we have victory. The penalty for our sin has been paid in full. And we have exactly the same pattern in the preaching of the Gospel today. The Apostle Paul says that the message of the cross has the appearance of foolishness and weakness. 1 Corinthians 1.18 And so people look at what we're doing here at St Barnabas on Sunday mornings and they say, how weak, how foolish... But you see, the word word of God is the sword of the Spirit. And it enables God's kingdom to advance, even though it appears to be so weak. And I want to show you where this theme is going. So won't you please come with me now to the end of the Bible, to Revelation chapter 19 on page 886. Revelation chapter 19, page 886. While you're turning there, let me tell you that uh, Revelation is a message from the risen Lord Jesus delivered to the Apostle John for the church in every generation. And what the book of Revelation is doing is telling us what's really going on behind the scenes in the unseen realm of spiritual reality. That's what the book of Revelation is all about. And chapter 19, verse 11, we have this magnificent picture of Jesus. Verse 11, John says, I saw heaven standing open. You see, peeping behind the scenes of the physical world to what's going on behind. I saw heaven standing open, And there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he, what's the next word? He judges and makes war. And what else are we told about him? Verse 13, he's dressed in a robe dipped in blood. Pause on that. 
You see, again, it's the appearance of weakness, isn't it? Because if you see someone with blood spattered all over their clothing, you think, oh dear, they're in trouble, they're injured, call the ambulance. And then it continues and says, yes, his robe is dipped in blood and his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. I find it absolutely fascinating that almost the last description that we have of the Lord Jesus Christ in the Bible is this. He's a judge. He looks weak because he's covered in blood. But nevertheless, through his word, that sharp sword, the oppressive way to sin and death and evil is taken from us. The devil has been defeated and his destruction is guaranteed. And friends, Judges chapter 3 is an anticipation of all of that. Don't misunderstand. Judges 3 isn't fiction. These are things that actually happened in time and space history. But through those historical events, God was building a picture of God's people in every generation, oppressed by a grotesque tyrant, but delivered by an unlikely, weak-looking saviour raised up by God. Now this is good news for you and me this morning. Because you and I groan, don't we, under the pressure of sin and death and fears and all kinds of tribulations and addictions and the burden of things that sometimes seem to rule us and define who we are, causing us, I think, to feel discouraged in many situations. And we sometimes doubt that we're ever actually going to reach our heavenly destination, don't we? But you see, we have a more righteous Ehud who's already come. He's come in apparent weakness on the cross. But he has brought perfect deliverance through his powerful two-edged sword. And on your Christian pilgrimage, in the midst of all of these struggles and the ups and downs, you need to have confidence in the person and the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our saviour, he is the judge, and he's the one that we've got to keep turning to. It's very interesting, right at the end of the story in uh, Judges 3, you don't need to turn back there, but uh, Ehud goes into the hill country and he says to the people, follow me. And the people of God do precisely that. And they enjoy peace in the land for 80 years. 
And the Lord Jesus says to you and me this morning, follow me. And uh, as we do so, he gives us the assurance that we will enter into the life of the world to come. We will reach our destination where there's peace, not just for 80 years, but forever and ever. So who does the Lord save? He saves those who cry out to him. Have you done that? Do you need to do that this morning, perhaps for the first time? How does the Lord save? Through an apparently weak saviour who defeats the enemy of God's people by wielding the word of God. And so as you go out into the world this week, have confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ and have confidence in his powerful word. Let's pray. Let's have a moment of quiet and maybe you want to cry out to the Lord now in the peace of your heart. Heavenly Father, we are just like Israel in so many ways. In the hustle and bustle of life, we do sometimes forget you. Please forgive us. Please make us those who continually cry out to you. Because we know that you alone can rescue. And you delight to answer our prayers when we cry out in faith. And Father, increase our confidence in your word as the means that you have appointed to bring all the nations under the gracious rule of King Jesus. And we ask it in his name. Amen.